So back in the 1600s, there we go, a guy by the name of John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody ever read it? Listen to it? That counts. Free soccer, or not free soccer, the uh, family over there loves to listen to books. Um, but back in the 1600s, a guy by the name of John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. It is this fictional story about this guy named Christian who's trying to find his way to the celestial city. And he goes on, when he's on his way, he meets all kinds of people, and most of the people on this path are trying to steer him away from his journey to the celestial city. Um, they're either steering him in a different direction, and there's obstacles in his way, um, but every time he turns around, there's something that's happening. And he, there's this one scene where he, this guy named Christian, Christian and his friend, um, named Hopeful. They're by these delectable mountains. This delectable mountain range is what it's called. And this wise shepherd comes along and the wise shepherd says, beware of the flatterer. So they continue their track and eventually arrive at this fork in the road. And when they get to the fork in the road, you know, some forks are kind of like you're going this way, you're going this way. And, you know, the impression you get from the book is both, both paths seem to be going in the same direction. So they're sitting there hopeful and Christian. And they're trying to figure out what to do. And as they're talking about it, this guy named Flatterer shows up. And Flatterer says, you know, being the generous man that he is, he says, follow me and I'll take you there. And so they follow Flatterer and little by little, as they get going down this path, they realize that they're going in the wrong direction. And they, they get to the edge of the path and they fall off and they get entangled in this, this net and so Hopeful and Christian are laying in this net. They realize there's no way to escape. And as soon as they fall in the net, Flatterer's robe falls off, and they see who he really is. And Christian and Hopeful know they've made a horrible mistake. And it's, here's the thing that I think sticks out about the story, or at least this part of it. As they're entangled in this net, and they're trying to break themselves free, they realize two things. One, they ignored the advice of the wise shepherd. The wise shepherd said, you know, don't listen to the flatterer. And they ignored his advice. And the second thing is they had this book that they took with them that would help them along their journey. It was called The Good Book. And they hadn't referenced The Good Book at all because they were with the flatterer. And they figured the flatterer would just take them wherever they needed to go. So they didn't reference The Good Book. So they listened to the shepherd. They didn't listen to The Good Book. And if you read the book, Bunyan does a phenomenal job with these various characters. Some are, the, the names of the characters, you can almost tell how they're going to interact with Christian and his other friends just by their names. Some are named like Greed and some are named, you know, Mr. Lawful. And there's just all these different names. And, and it's, it's such a, he just does a great job, I think, of painting this picture of the realities of our lives as we follow Christ. And the realities of what really happens as we pursue Christ. And really, the, the, I think the countless ways that as you're walking that path, that narrow path, that Satan tries to pull you off course. Right? Happen, happens to all of us. Past few weeks, we've been walking through 1 Samuel. We preached through books of the Bible. We finished John last year, and then we jumped over to the Old Testament. We've been in 1 Samuel. And one of the things you'll notice about the Israelites is that they were constantly pulled off course. Would you agree? I mean, they, they kind of in this cycle of they're, they're doing good, they fall into sin, they repent, and then God rescues, or God rescues them after repentance. It's in this continuous cycle. It's almost, you could refer to it as the cycle of the Israelites. And it probably could refer to some of our lives as well. But it's just this 
continuous cycle. And the interesting thing is, as you're looking through Scripture, there's a couple, I think there's a couple different points where you could trace a lot of their issues back to. Like, just one step they made, one path that they chose in the wrong direction that had a domino effect for the rest of their lives. And you can, you can see these little points in time. And one of them, specifically, is as they're entering the promised land. So right after they got in the promised land, remember there was the battle of Jericho. And they walked around the walls of Jericho seven times. The walls fell down, which in and of itself is crazy. They didn't do anything. The walls just fell down. Shows you how much God cares about them. But their first task, as they got into the promised land, was to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. You remember that? That was kind of their first task. God said, go in, drive out all the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And so when you read through Joshua, that's kind of what you're going to read. When you read through Joshua, that's what's happening. When you get to Judges, the first part of Judges, they're doing the same thing. And they do a pretty good job for a while. If you read Judges chapter 1, it's they you know, drove out so-and-so, drove out so-and-so, drove out so-and-so. Then you get to Judges 119, and there's a, there's a different path they decide to take. All right, Judges one nineteen, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Now, when you first read it, you kind of feel sorry for them. You, you, you understand their plight. If you're, I mean, at least it makes sense. They will, of course they couldn't drive them out. They had chariots of iron, and chariots were like tanks. I mean, they were literally the tanks of the ancient world. There was really nothing. I mean, if you were just an army of foot soldiers and these chariots were coming your way, they were pretty much going to plow you down. There was, there was really no, no way around it. And so Israel's like, look, God, we, we couldn't drive them out. We know this is what you told us to do. We know this is the, what you commanded us to do now that we're finally in the promised land after all these years of wandering. They had chariots of iron, so we couldn't do it. And again, you feel a little sympathy for them, but then as you go through the rest of the chapter, you see the same thing repeat itself over and over and over. Verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of, I'm just going to butcher all these names, Nelohu, and the Canaanites lived among them, but become subjects to forced labor. 31, Asher did not, and you get the point. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive, and it goes from tribe to tribe to tribe to tribe, almost all the 12 tribes of Israel that did not do what God asked them to do. They did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. They start out really strong. Joshua, Judges 1, God's with them. They know God's with them. And then things get complicated and they improvise. Life gets tough and they decide to choose a different path. And they make this agreement with the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and they said, you don't bother us, we won't bother you. Let's have a little deal. You can stay here even though we were supposed to drive you out. If you don't bother us, we won't bother you. They make a deal. God says, how does God like that? Judges 2.1. I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. 
and their gods will be a snare to you. Now, this has great implications for 1 Samuel chapter 8, as they're looking around at the nations around them. But just on its surface, why do you think it was such a big deal? This is rhetorical. That they, why do you think it was such a big deal that they didn't drive out the inhabitants of the land? I mean, you can get it, right? Chariots of iron, it was tough. Life got tough. Like, just let us just live with these people already. Like, we know this is what you asked us to do, God, but, you know, what's the problem? Let's let some of these tribes stay here. We can coexist. We can do this. But here's the problem. Here's the way God is looking at this situation. At its root, it's unbelief. They see these guys with chariots. There's no way in a million years we can beat these chariots. Life has thrown something at us that is too difficult for God to handle. Therefore, we're going to choose a different path. That's essentially what they're saying. It's lack of faith. And it's going to have implications for the rest of the history of these people. Okay? And on the surface, it seems ridiculous. But even the smallest areas of unbelief in our lives can be disastrous. Little tiny foothold in your life that you don't think is a big deal at all. But the smallest areas of unbelief where you just, if you're not careful... They can be disastrous. And Israel's like, but God, we can't drive them out. And here's what God says. He goes, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. That's, that's the difference. It's not that you can't. It has nothing to do with your lack of strength. It has to do with your lack of trust. Think about all the battles they had fought. The walls of Jericho came down because they marched around them. They did nothing except march. And you hear all these battles where God gave such and such into their hand and gave such and such into their hand because they trusted the Lord. And then they get to a point where, oh, it's a little tough. And they just, I know he's done this for me in the past. I know he's done this for us in the past. I know he's taking care of us here. But this situation is too big for God. And that's essentially what they're saying. And if, if you just kind of step back and think about it, it's pretty mind-blowing. After everything God's done for them, they still doubt. All the promises they'd been given, all the victories they had seen, they still doubted the power of God. I mean, they had heard stories of the ten plagues of Egypt. Nothing like that had ever happened in the history of the world before. And they heard stories of these locusts coming, these frogs coming, the firstborn child died. I mean, they, there's no doubt. In an oral society, they had heard these stories. They had heard stories of the Israelites leaving, their forefathers leaving Egypt in the Exodus, coming out into the Red Sea and standing there and saying, God... This looks like too big of a problem for you to handle. I have no idea what you're going to do here because there's a body of water in front of us and there's chariots behind us. What are you going to do? And God says, I'm going to split the Red Sea and you're going to walk across it on dry land. I mean, if if that isn't a picture of what God is capable of doing, and yet they still doubt it. Bread from, bread from heaven, water from a rock. And somehow they just didn't think that God could help them when it came to the Canaanites in the promised land. And I think, I just think, there's probably a lesson in there for us as well. Because there's probably areas in your life, I know there are areas in my life, where God says, do this, and you say, I can't. And he says, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. And I I know it's true for me, and it's probably true for you. And I wrote down some that I I think just tend to be 
the most common, but there's probably hundreds of areas in all of our lives across this room where we could get up and get a microphone and say, here's an area where I just don't think God is big enough. And God's saying, you need to do this. And you said, "Mm, I don't want to do that. I can't. And God says, you won't. You know, maybe it's finances. You know, I, I know I need to be generous and, but that extra security blanket, right? That bigger barn, that bigger, whatever, 401k, whatever, whatever it is, God says, be generous. And you're like, well, God, I can be generous when I get to this stage. When I get to this point, then I can start. And God's like, trust me. Just trust me. Or maybe it's relationships. Lord, I just, man, I want to get married so bad. I want to have a relationship with somebody so bad. And, you know, I know that you want me to have a relationship with somebody who walks with you, but that's not happening. And I don't think you can make it happen. And I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. And I know this person doesn't really walk with you, but... I don't trust you. I don't trust that you have it under control. I think I need to take, I don't, I don't have faith that you can do this. That's essentially what it is. Maybe it's ministry. God's placed something on your heart ministry-wise, and it's big. It's a, it's a God-sized vision. vision. It's huge. The only way that this ministry could happen is if God was with it. And God's placed it in your heart and you're just like, I don't know, God, I don't know if you can do this. Right? And I mean, I could go on and on and on of all the areas where God says, you can, and you say, I can't, and God says, no, you won't. And so my, my encouragement for you is to find those areas of your life and give them to the Lord. Lord, I know that I, I have always told you that I can't unless you do X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to trust you. They have chariots of iron, and I don't know how we're going to overcome this. There's a Red Sea in front of us, and I don't know how I'm going to walk through that Red Sea, but you said you are who you say you are, and you're going to do what you're going to do, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to take the first step. And I know that when I take that first step, it's going to be parted, and I'm going to walk on dry land. Because you have told me this is where you want me to go. And if we're not careful, I think we can find ourselves just like the Israelites, lacking faith. Okay, so today as we walk through 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to see the Israelites once again looking around them and all the nations around them and saying, we want what they got. They've let these nations stay in their land. God said, get rid of them. They let them stay. And now they're looking around and they're saying, yeah, we want, we want a little bit of that. We'll take Ashtaroth and the Baals and these gods and maybe we want a king. And, you know, we'll, we'll do all these different things. And so that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to say, God, we want a king. You've got judges over us. We don't want judges over us anymore. We want a king. That's what they're going to say in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So as far as a timeline, little transition... Um, 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 7 was probably 25 years ago. So what we covered last week probably took place 20 to 25 years before chapter 8. The reason we know that is because the first sentence, Samuel is now an old man. So in 1 Samuel chapter 1, remember Hannah prayed, wanted a child. God gave her Samuel. She came when Samuel was probably 3, gave him to Eli in the temple. Samuel was raised in the temple. We see just a couple snippets of events that happen in Samuel's life when he's young. And then we get to chapter 8 and he's already an old man. Okay, so this is how it starts. Um, 1 Samuel 8.1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of the second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after 
after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. I love how that's just kind of thrown in there. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They're walking with the Lord. The Lord can't provide the way I want him to provide. They turned aside for gain. Don't miss the picture that the Bible is showing you. They, they were sons of Samuel and they turned aside for gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So at this point in the nation of Israel, we had just, we're in the time of the judges. Israel's never had a king. All right, we're in the times of the judges. We just finished the book of Judges. Some of these judges actually judged. Some of these judges were more military leaders. They were deliverers. So if the people got in trouble, God would raise up a judge and they would go crush the Philistines. Think Samson. Samson was a judge. He was raised up to take care of a specific problem at a specific time. The people were fine. They lived in 40 years of peace and then the cycle happens again. You know, they go into captivity and then he raises up a judge, frees them, that kind of thing. So Samuel's trying to introduce something a little new, which is hereditary passing of the torch. That had never really happened before hereditary passing the torch. God had always raised up judges and Samuel goes, I really want my sons to be the next judges. And the people are like, "Uh uh-uh, they're scoundrels. We don't want nothing to do with your sons. They're not going to lead us. We don't want that. And you'll see that in verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. I wish I had kind of bolded that, underlined that, like all the nations. All right, that last phrase is so important to the context of this passage. What are they doing? They're looking around at what everybody else has. They're not trusting in God's direction. They're looking around and they say, we want a king. If they had stopped it right there, they might have gotten a king. The, the, you know, God might have been a little more accepting of their want for a king. But they said, like all the nations. Samuel, we're feeling kind of weird because we don't have a king. All these nations around us have kings. We've got no government. We've got no royal family. We've got no military to speak of. We've got an invisible God who you expect us just to place our faith in. What gives? We want a king like everybody else. And now, now here's the thing you need to understand. For clarity, their request for a king was not a problem. God had already promised to them, or at least laid the groundwork in Deuteronomy 17, that there would one day be a king, that they would, they would have a king. He would give them a king at some point. However, the reason for them wanting a king is the issue. It shows their lack of faith. We want a king because of the other nations. If, they, if, the, if the verse had said, give us a king so he can lead us in your ways... Give us a king so we can be a light to the nation. Somebody who can help us reflect your glory, God, to all of the nations. God probably would have been like, that's a much more accepting reason for a king. But they said, give us a king like all the other nations have. They weren't like the other nations. They were different. They were set apart. They were holy. God was their king. It was a theocracy. But they're like, God, here's the deal. We, we have faith in you. But if something happens, we need a figurehead. We need somebody who can lead us into battle. Things get tough. I mean, 
these enemies are right on our doorstep and you raise up a judge at the last minute. We're paranoid over here. You raise up a judge at the last minute, then we go conquer them. We don't like living in all that anxiety of not knowing what's going to happen. We don't like living in all this fear. We knew if we have a king, he'll have a military and he'll have this and we'll have soldiers and we'll be able to defend ourselves. We don't really like this current structure of government. You know, we want, we need a safety net. We got to pay bills. We got real enemies that are looking to hurt us. We need some help. We have social issues we've got to deal with. Like, let's get a king in here. We want someone we can see and touch and walk with. And when things get tough, we want someone who's going to take matters into their own hands and not wait for you to act in your time. Can you relate? How often do we think God needs to act now and we don't want to wait for his timing? I want God to act right now when I want him to act. And God says, this is my time. My timing. I'm going to do what I do in my time. All right, and it's so easy to trust God when job's secure. Marriage is going great. Kids are behaving. Everybody's happy. Everybody's healthy. But when one of those things goes sideways, our tendency is to ignore God and take matters into our own hands. Would you agree? Something goes sideways. All right, God. I know you're up there, but I got this. I'm back on the throne. I got the wheel. Let me deal with this. You know, you're not quite putting enough money in my bank. I'm going to go deal with this. I'm going to take care of this. And Israel's not content trusting God for their deliverance. So verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So here's what God's doing. He's trying to help them understand what a king is going to be like. It's a parenting technique. You've been wanting to do this, wanting to do this, wanting to do this. I'm going to let you do it. But before you do it, I'm going to explain to you what's going to take place. I'm going to explain to you the trouble you're going to get into. I'm going to explain to you the heartache you're probably going to cause yourself if you continue to walk down this path. Because I'm your parent and I love you. And I want you to know what's going to happen, but I'm going to give you freedom. I'm going to let you choose what you want. I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you your heart's desire. Even though in the end it may not work out well. And that's, that's basically what God's doing here. You know, these, these Israelites, they want a government. They want security. They want leadership to be their savior. Human governments. Human leaders. Thankfully, we don't have that issue today. 21st century, we're way beyond trusting human governments and human leaders. Am I right? Um, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Now listen to the repetition. He describes their kings in the following verses with one very descriptive word. Take. That's the word. Take. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before the chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, 
and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And when he, when he finishes it with that phrase, and you shall be his slaves, everybody listening would have immediately returned to Egypt in their minds. They'd heard all about the slavery in Egypt for 400 years or however long they were in Egypt. And it says, and you shall be his slaves. Verse 18, and in that day, you will cry out just like they did in Egypt, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, which in reality means they're refusing to obey the voice of God because he's speaking on God's behalf. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. There's that phrase again, that we may also be like all the nations. They want to be just like everybody around them, all right? And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, this last phrase, this verse, go out before us and fight our battles, is it's a very interesting verse to me because the people of Israel want a king to fight their battles. And it's a pretty ironic request, if you ask me, if you think about all the battles they have fought and all the ways that God has fought their battles for them. Walk around Jericho, the walls fall down, you didn't do anything. The walls just fell down. You go into these different camps and people run away. There's like thunder and lightning, they get scared. God has fought their battles for them time and time and time and time again. And one of their reasons for wanting a human king is we want him to fight our battles. And I think it's even more ironic given what just happened in chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. I don't know... if that was the author's intent, but we get very few stories from the life of Samuel. I mean, we see Hannah in chapters 1 and 2. We see Eli's scoundrel sons. Then we see the ark captured, chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. The ark of the covenant is taken, and then we're right here in chapter 8. So we see very few actual stories of Samuel, but one of them we see is last week, the ark of the covenant. Remember the the Israelites, this was 20 to 25 years before, but they brought the ark of the covenant into battle with them. Remember that? They'd probably seen the nations around them bring their gods to battle, to the front lines, to give them good luck. So the Israelites decided, well, we can't, you know, our God is in heaven, and so we're going to bring the closest thing we have, his, his presence with us, the Ark of the Covenant, where he would rest in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So somebody had the bright idea to go into the Holy of Holies to grab the Ark of the Covenant, to come out, go through the tabernacle, and take the Ark of the Covenant to the front lines. You remember that from last week? So they bring the Ark of the Covenant to the front lines, and it gets captured. And for the first time, for the first time in the history of the, of really, the history of the Israelites, the Ark was in the hands of the enemy. And here's the funny thing. After it's captured, what happens? After the Ark is captured and taken into Philistine territory... Do the Israelites do anything? They don't do anything. The ark, on its own, wreaks havoc on all the Philistines. God fighting their battles for them. 
right? There's no Israelites involved. And everywhere the ark goes, it doles out plagues and punishment. The Philistines keep sending it from city to city to city to city because everywhere it goes, there's destruction. Their gods are falling on the ground. The the arms of their fake gods are falling off. And everywhere they go, the ark is causing havoc. No Israelites involved. All right? How's that for power? How's that for God fighting your battles for you? And after seven months, the Philistines are so tired of that happening, the Philistines are like, take this thing back. Like, we don't even want this thing anymore. So they, you know, as bright as they are, they tie the ark between two milk cows, take the milk cows' calves away from it, tie the ark between two milk cows, and say, go. Oh, by the way, they put golden mice and golden tumors inside of the ark. So they gave a bunch of their riches and their money to the Israelites as well, you know, as an offering. And they say, go. And the ark takes off. And of course, God directs it and it rolls right into Israelite territory after it's just decimated a lot of the Philistines. And it arrives back Israeli territory. The cows walk up to some guys who are out doing the harvest in 1 Samuel 6, 13, comes up and just walks right up to him. And this is what it says. It says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Now here's what you have to understand. The ark's been gone for seven months. The way that the Israelites connect with God is non-existent. The ark's not there. Right? It's non-existent. When you read that, they're out doing the, reap, the wheat harvest, they're out reaping their wheat harvest, does it sound like they're breaking down doors and fighting battles trying to retrieve the ark? Not to me. Sounds like they probably thought, well, that chapter of our life is done. The Ark of the Covenant is now gone. It's in Philistine territory. That was good while it lasted. Let's just move on with life. They're out reaping wheat in the fields. And then two guys, all of a sudden, one day, they're out, you know, taking care of their harvest. And they look up, and lo and behold, the Ark of the Covenant is the most sacred piece of furniture in existence. It's coming down to the back of two cows into their territory. It says they rejoiced. All right? And here's, here's the thing I love about that. Number one, God fights their battles. So to want a king to fight your battles for you, because you need a human king because he can fight your battles, it's a lack of faith. God fought their battles. And the other thing I love is, isn't that just like the Lord to come back into your life when you're least expecting it? You're out doing your thing, career, life, relationships, paying no attention to him, maybe even running from him for some of you. And in his mercy... And in his kindness, even when you're not looking for him, he pursues you. Comes into your life, tells you how much he loves you. How much he cares about you. And says, I know you haven't been looking for me in the last seven months, but I never stopped loving you. I never stopped caring about you. And it's a beautiful picture of our heavenly father. It's the exact opposite of take, 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 take. You couldn't get any further away from take, take, take. And the people of Israel, even though they know all this, they've seen all this, they've said, we want a king, we can see, end of story. Just like all the other nations have. We want to live by sight. Because living by faith is too difficult. 
That's essentially what they're saying. Living by faith is too difficult. We need to live by sight. So last two verses, 21, 22. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Why do you think God gave him a king? He didn't have to. He could have simply said no. Why do you think God gave them a king? You know, sometimes I think God gives us the deepest desires of our heart so we can learn the hard way. That's not really what we want. We may think that's what we want, but in the end, that's, that's, that's not the security we were seeking. It was a deeper, more genuine relationship with the Lord. That ever happened to you? You've obsessed over something for, or someone for so long, and you've just said, I've, I want this, I've prayed about it, I've prayed about it, I've prayed about it, I've fasted over it, I've done everything I possibly know how to do because I want this, whatever this is. I want this, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and you beg God, Lord, just, you've made promises, Lord, if you do this, I'll do this, you've negotiated every, every, everything that imaginable to get what you wanted, and he relented, and he gave you what you wanted, and in the end, you realized that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. That was way different than I anticipated. The, the, the path that I chose that I thought was going to lead me to, you know, the proverbial celestial city, heaven, following God, this is what God wants, was a totally different path. And it took me somewhere I really didn't want to go. But God gave me what I wanted because I begged and I pleaded and he just, sometimes he's going to let you have your way. And what you thought would be a blessing turned out to be a curse. And it happens, I mean, all areas of our lives. Happens in relationships, happens with finances, happens with jobs. I can't tell you the number of young men I've met with over the years working with college kids. And they've been praying fervently for a job. Fervently for a job. And all of a sudden I get a call that just they're ecstatic. And they're like, oh, I got a job. You know, I mean, if you you talk to college guys... They want one thing. Well, they want two things. The second one's a job. The first thing is a wife. But the, fir- the second one is a job. They want a job. And they, you know, so this is, it's a lot of my conversations when I talk to college guys, especially no matter if they're in college or not, but that age, you know, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? What's my career going to look like? What is this going to happen? And they're like, man, I've been praying about this, praying about this, praying about this. And this is the job I really want. And I'm praying about it. And they'll call and say, hey, I got the job. And when the congratulations kind of settle down and you're talking through the schedule, what's it going to look like? Where are you going to work? What's the location? They're like, well, you know, I can no longer come to church ever because I have to work every single Sunday. And, you know, but I think God's okay with that. And I no longer can go to small group, you know, my discipleship stuff that I meet with. Can't really do that anymore because I have to work on this night. And by the end of the conversation, I'm just like, is that really what you want? Like, do do you really think that's what you need. And I'm not saying if you ever have to work on Sundays that don't hear me on that. I realize things happen. All I'm saying is the Lord wants a deep relationship with you. And a lot of these guys I talk to and they kind of drift away from church because they're working Sundays. They got a new group of work friends they now have instead of the friends they used to have. 
And before long, before you know it, they just slowly slip away. And it happens in relationships, happens in finances. Lord, you know how much I need a boyfriend. You know how much I need a girlfriend. You know how much I want this. And I don't really trust that you have everything in control. So I'm going to go ahead and take matters into my own hands. And this is the person I've got my eye on. And I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to go ahead and take advantage. I'm going to start dating this person. I need this. You don't know what I need. I know what I need. I don't really trust you. This person's right in front of me. I'm going to do it. And we could go on with finances and jobs and promotions and, you know, you get to the end of your life and you worked hard, made a lot of money and look back and said, what in the world happened? There is just carnage in the path behind me because what I thought was the path that was going to lead me to the right place, in the end, it didn't. Don't ever let your earthly desire for security in many different ways outweigh your pursuit of the king. Because that's what Satan wants more than anything. He wants your earthly pursuits for security. God, I know you got a lot of things over here, but I got this over here. I'm going to go ahead and take care of this. Don't ever let those outweigh your pursuit of the king. And then on the flip side of that, the other crazy thing is I realized that some of God's best mercies, some of best mercies I've ever received in my life and grace I've ever received in my life have come from unanswered prayers. And at the time, you're mad. At the time, you're like, why aren't you giving me this job? Why aren't you giving me this? Why aren't you giving me this? Why aren't you giving me that? And God's like, I know what's best for you. And your prayer goes unanswered. You're angry. You're frustrated. Why didn't you answer this? And in the end, you can look back and say, wow, if I had taken that path, the path that I wanted, that's where I would be. And God said, I got something better for you. I'm the one who created you. I know many hairs are on your head. I knew you in your mother's womb. I've had constantly been pursuing you, even when seven months went by and you wanted nothing to do with me. I have constantly been pursuing you. I know what's best for your life. So as we close, where do we, where do we go from here? What, what, can we, what can we learn from these 22 verses in 1 Samuel chapter 8? What can we learn from the Israelites? Well, for starters, for those of you who you would consider yourself a follower of Christ. Yeah, I'm a a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Are you walking by faith? Are you truly walking by faith? Are Are you trusting God? Are you demanding to see the way? I need to see the king in front of me. I need to see. I can't, you know, there's, there's this level of faith and lack of trust. I need to see the way. The Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. It's one of the hardest things you're ever going to do. Walk by faith. Everybody around is going to be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing that? Why are you taking that job? Why are you moving there? You're moving where? For What? doesn't make any sense. And you're like, well, I walk by faith. So what God told me to do is what I'm going to do. We walk by faith, not by sight. Think about the areas in your life where you struggle walking by faith. The areas over here. The areas that you usually like to keep for yourself in control. Think about the areas where you struggle living by faith and give those to the Lord. Maybe it's finances, relationship, job, promotions, whatever it is. Give those areas of your life to the Lord. And the other thing I'd encourage you to do, for those of you who would consider yourself followers of Christ, identify the kings in your life. 
sounds a little weird, but identify the kings in your life. Areas where you have taken your eyes off of Jesus and you've placed them on something else in your life for security, for peace, for joy, for comfort, something to fight your battles for you. God, you can't handle this. I'm going to go over here and do this. Identify those areas, those kings in your life. Every person in here has a king in your life. Everybody in here has a king. It's either a man-made king, something you go to, or it's the real king. All right, Paul tells the church at Galatia in chapter Galatians 4, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. You're enslaved to either Jesus, the giver of life, or to something else that takes you down that different path. And my encouragement for you would be to recognize where we've kind of strayed, for me to recognize where I've strayed, and get back on the right path. Get back on the narrow path. And then for those of you who are in here today, you say, man, I've been coming and God's been pursuing me, but I'm not a follower of Christ. Like I have never truly professed faith in Christ. My encouragement to you would be to trust him today. For so much of my life, if I'm honest, I was enslaved to kings. That all they did was take, 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 take. Took my mind, took my heart, took my soul, took pleasure, took whatever they wanted. All different ways, all different shapes. Money, trying to get popularity, partying, whatever it is. And in the end, you realize that all they did is take a little bit more, take a little bit more, take a little bit more. And the beauty of Jesus is that he came not to take, but he came to sacrifice and to give. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And not to take, but to give. To give his life as a ransom for many. All right, I'm going to close with this quote by Tim Keller. In his book, The Reason for God, this is what he says. He says, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fully, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. Let's pray.